You can possibly find our show notes at anticapitalzero.wordpress.com, and you can definitely find our show notes uh, in the description of the SoundCloud uploads for each of these episodes. Um, if you would start, one of you two. Someone take the initiative, please. Go on, Brawl. <coughs> Brawl, start. Hi, I'm Brawlitariot. And I'm Zoe. And I'm Fibwick. And today we have a special guest, Inverse, from the book club. Um, so, Inverse, could you talk a little bit about how you found the book club? Uh, so, I found it actually on Reddit. Um, I was in a, I guess I still am technically, a group chat with this gentleman online called Jehu, who some of you may have heard of. I know people in the podcast have. Um, he runs a little blog that is uh, terrible, I've come to find. And he wrote an article shortly after the pandemic started about how capitalism was dead and we needed to just let it die. And sent that article out to a few communist activists on the internet, uh, one of which was Artie um, through Anti-Capital. And Broll one day dropped into the chat and got into a big argument with Jehu and stormed out and lo and behold invited me to join this and here I am. It's a lot more exciting than I realized. I, I do want to clarify, I did not storm out. I was thrown out of that chat. That's, that's true. He got banned. <laughs> he... I believe the specific exchange was he he wanted to say things like like type them you know and he was like if you say one more thing I'm I'm gonna ban you unless you like stop typing and let me type and I'm like I, I don't really think I was typing over the guy like you know if you're having a conversation you can talk over people and that's rude but that doesn't really happen in typing anyway and so I just sort of sat there for probably like three minutes and then he never said anything so I was like. Okay, well, since you're obviously going to ban me anyway, here's a link to a book club that I run. Everybody else, everybody else in here who thinks this is bullshit can come join me. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it went. Hey, Inverse, so the title of the article is The Poverty of BreadTube. Could you tell us a little bit about what BreadTube is as you see it? BreadTube is largely the mainstream left manifestation, I guess, on YouTube. They make YouTube videos about generally left content. Most of them are socialists, um, which I take umbrage with in the article, as you can read. Well, I don't think that they have a very good understanding of socialism, really even what it is, or how you get there, um, which is something that I definitely bring up in the article. Uh, they uh, kind of see socialism, I would say, is like the state management of value instead of its abolition or the overcoming of capitalism generally. Really, I'd say that they kind of see socialism more as social democracy and just kind of stop there and don't really go any further than that. So lately we've seen kind of a lot of idealism from one specific major bread tuber. What are kind of your thoughts on that? Oh, of course. Uh, well, I, I cover it a little bit, I'd say, in the article, but uh, I don't bring up names specifically. Bosh. It, that is who we're talking about, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think it's totally wrong to call people out by name saying, hey, if you have a rebuttal to this, you know, feel free to write us. We can publish it with our own editorial comments, and we can establish a dialogue that way. And if if you do want to submit something in writing, the, the best way to contact us would be through our email, which is or does it explode at protonmail.com. And you can also find that 
email address through the Anti-Capital website, which is anticapitalzero.wordpress.com, and there's a Contact Us page. That is actually something that I was kind of hoping would happen from this article. Um, while I don't necessarily say specific names, I think I make it a little obvious who I'm talking about, uh, which is Vosh, ContraPoints, the more prominent bread tubers, I would say. So I, I would I would love for them to respond. I don't know if they will. I don't think I'm a big enough name for that. I'm no name, but, you know, I, I'd like for that to happen. So uh, Commando asked the question, or what he, what he says verbatim is, uh, why do you think BreadTube sucked enough to write a whole article about it? Maybe expanding on that a little, or the journey you went through uh, uh, and the evolution of your thought process on that. Uh, so, BreadTube, I found, actually, after getting a little bit more involved in socialist or, I guess, more broadly left thought, so I wouldn't really say that they radicalized me at all. I mean, if I had to give any one specific thing, it would, well, first of all, just be my general life experience. I'm a fucking poor person working the barely minimum wage, scraping by during a global recession and all that, so that helped a lot. And then... The campaign of Bernie Sanders definitely brought it all together. But I, I found BreadTube after that. I, obviously, I don't know a whole hell of a lot, but I had a little bit of an understanding of socialism, what it, what it was, um, the idea of it at least. Not every BreadTube video is about socialism, but the ones that are, anytime they bring it up, they just don't seem to really understand it, um, at least by the words that they say out of their mouths. So over time, it just kind of built up on me that, you know, these people that are supposed to be socialists that advocate for a socialist future, you know, they, they want socialism, as far as I can tell, don't even really seem to have a coherent idea about what it, exactly it is or how to get there beyond voting for people like Corbyn or Sanders, um, etc. That's basically where I'm coming from, and I didn't really have any outlet, I guess, to talk about it beyond just rage posting on Discord, so I figured if I wrote an article, that would be the best thing to start with, because I do watch a lot of BreadTube, generally in a critical lens, especially now. Like I was saying to you on Discord, you know, the, uh, the idealism is really strong, and there is no hint of materialist thinking in sight. Oh, not at all, no. I, and I think part of the problem comes from that that a lot of these bread tubers, and, and you can kind of figure it out from the name, uh, are anarchists. It's a shame Andy's not here. I, I know. I'm sure they'd have thought. Well, and Andy's a, a cool anarchist, so. He's the one anarchist who reads theory, so he's all right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm glad you were able to feel like you could use the anti-capital platform as a means of expressing that dissatisfaction with bread tube and like using it as a platform for a critique basically because uh, that's ideally what we'd like to use it for not just as like a platform for critique but just as a platform for people who have opinions that they want to broadcast it's like a curated platform though it's not like we're just going to kind of publish any sort of thing like it's it's a thing where you'll write for it and you'll get some fairly detailed and critical feedback on what you've written so if we don't think what you've written is like very in line with any sort of marxist understanding of the world or anything like that if it just doesn't seem to make Makes sense we'll call you out on that sort of thing so it's not like we're just offering a platform for anybody to throw their ideas out there it, it is something we're looking to 
create and curate along with the book club. So it's like a simultaneous education platform while also allowing you a place to express the results of that education, if that makes sense. Because you, you've said kind of one of the things that inspired you to write the article is how much you've learned through the book club. And so the article is sort of a fruit of the book club, if that makes sense. And the anti-capital publication is the outlet for that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I would say that for the most part, I mean, I, I learned some stuff before I came to the book club. Um, but the book club has helped me the most, I would say, in kind of understanding a socialist practice, which is something that I never really saw anywhere else. Because even like going back to Jehu, um, his whole idea is basically just, oh, the workers just need to stop working and then we'll have communism. And it's like, well, that's pretty stupid uh, once you think about it for a little bit like who are these workers that you're supposed to be getting to stop working uh, who the people that read your blog like is that it because um, it's not like he does any activism in the real world you know he doesn't join with the struggles of labor uh, and in fact he's pretty anti-class struggle so I, I don't really know who he expects to carry out his grand plan you know sorry anti-class struggle? yes yeah he's weird Oh, what? Yeah, um, it's a whole thing. He basically doesn't think that the proletariat is a class in capitalism. I, yeah, it's weird. It's, it's almost like an extreme <laughs> anti-activism thing where his entire conception of the class struggle is in a negative sense where all you have to do is withhold the active participation of labor and then suddenly capitalism dies out. Uh, so the general strike is probably something that he would approve of but maybe even in like a less drastic form where instead of like going out and walking a picket line it would just be everybody stay at home instead of like being on the streets and striking just stay at home which is why like the, the COVID thing was just like oh my god we've done it guys that was it <laughs> capitalism <laughs> defeated yeah and then the problem with that even beyond just a, a lack of his reach is just the fact that if, if that were to happen, if the general strike were to happen and all of labor was just withheld from the capitalists, uh, what then? I mean, the, the reason why you have a job and you go to work is so you can pay to buy food. And if everybody just strikes, and that's the only thing people do, your paychecks stop coming in. The capitalists are going to be fine. They've got food. They're, they're fine, you know? Like, if, if we're just talking about a life-or-death food situation, they're covered, you know? They literally have, like, bunkers with hydroponics and shit like that. Like, they're, they're fine. We'll starve to death in a matter of, like, I don't know how much food you guys keep at your house, but, like, we'll starve to death in a matter of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, even a trucker strike could cause a massive interruption of the food supply if it went on for long enough. Yeah, and that's, that's good as a strategic weapon to, like, meet specific demands, but I think the way Jehu conceives of it is just that it'll automatically happen after that fact. And it's like, there's there's nothing automatic about it. It's a very conscious, like, I mean, Marx says that communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be the solution. Like, it's a very conscious act. It's not something that just happens all by itself. It, it requires active direct intervention in the struggle to direct these specific struggles towards specific ends, you know? You, you get instances where working class weaponry is used for anti-working class purposes. So, like, there's wildcat, there were wild, wild cat strikes in Detroit like to prevent black labor from joining the unions or the factories and so like that's an instance where the working class weapon was used in anti-working class ways and means and that's completely possible without a specific socialist intervention in the struggle to point the struggle in the correct directions if 
that doesn't sound too vanguardist taking control of sorts of things. You know, it's one of the things the bread tubers don't get is that things are neither inherently good nor bad. They're either adapted to the circumstances or they're not. Yeah, <laughs> it's like strikes aren't, aren't good just in the abstract, you know? Because then you do get to a point, and this is something that becomes a little touchy as you go further into the uh, like further into the Soviet Union. If the workers are going on strike, what does that say exactly? You get like that's kind of a touchy, tricky thing that happens because after the overthrow of the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie and the institution of the Republic of Labor, capitalism still goes on. You've merely to understate it, exchanged political power between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Now the proletariat has the real task of constructing communism, which is something that Jehu's analysis completely lacks, that there is a positive, constructive side to the communist movement. It's not merely a negative, destructive, destroy capitalism kind of thing. Uh, well, he pretty much sees it as capitalism creates communism, like inside of itself, and that when we overthrow the state, communism just appears, and that's it, we're, we're done. Everything's already built, we just gotta take control of it. Okay, so he's a severely vulgar Marxist. Severely, yes. <laughs> that's a very severe misreading of something Marx writes, you know, like capitalism creates its own grave diggers in the proletariat, that sort of thing, which is true, but it still requires that act of construction after the overthrow of capitalism. Right, it just doesn't spring ready-made into your hands like, oh, here's communism. Congratulations, you win. Yeah, no, I mean, getting there, it's just... Um, what Lenin says is that in order to even really start getting to communism, you need a whole generation of people who have first been raised under socialism because it's a superstructural process um, as well as an economic one. You need people whose thoughts are not restricted by you know the strictures of bourgeois ideology. I think there was also a uh, wild slash weekly Marx quotes. Um, I think it was the third week that went over that uh, a little bit more in depth. I, I think Jehu th seems to think that we can have that socialist consciousness now um, and that the workers that are, let's say, not going to work and, you know, actively bringing about communism have that consciousness. Um, but where is it supposed to come from, really? Because we don't live in a socialist society. Bourgeois ideology, it's everywhere. Our lives are absolutely saturated in it. And, you know, for me, it's it's something I'm really aware of because um, ultimately I want to write fiction. So it's something I've had to really consider, you know, how how the narrative structure um, replicates bourgeois ideology. Another thing I would say about Jehu's perspective, I think that it lacks, is like a historical memory, basically, of any previous proletarian struggle. And the example I think of most immediately whenever I hear just this sort of oh, it'll happen automatically. The, the counterexample I have in mind is always Germany in 1918, where yeah. there was literally the complete absence of bourgeois state power. The, the German state had just been defeated in the First World War and was completely powerless. Councils were popping up everywhere, and it's, it's one of the periods of time that we'll be reading about in the book club after we finish up looking at uh, the Russian Revolution up to Brest-Litovsk and the Kronstadt Affair. Uh, a reading of history may give you some further opinions and insights into that. Which is starting this Friday, correct? Or last Friday? The uh, date? Third? Second? The, ninth? The first discussion date will be January 9th. 
Okay. <laughs> yes. But yeah, after we finish up reading about Kronstadt, which was in 1921, we'll read about the history of the German Revolution, which was between 1918 and 1923. And, but yeah, so basically there was a complete absence of state power for a brief period of time, and a very weak worker state popped up briefly in the form of those councils. But as soon as the bourgeoisie was able to like reorganize itself, the councils literally voted to disintegrate themselves and just hand power back over to the structures that the bourgeoisie was able to construct. That was just because, more or less, there was the absence of a political party fighting on behalf of the councils, demanding all power to the councils. It just didn't exist. And so it's just sort of a historical example of the necessity of having a party with a specific vision and determination to struggle for a specific direction, rather than just sitting back and saying, oh, these things will take care of themselves. Yeah, this has kind of become uh, <laughs> the Why Jehu's Wrong episode. Yeah, basically. He's got a few interesting writings that are like almost sort of right-ish, but overall he's just, uh, he's definitely not there. No, definitely not. It just goes to show that it's uh, pretty easy to get sucked into somebody's uh, somebody's worldview, I guess, uh, if they yeah. sound almost right, uh, which is basically what happened to me. Yeah, and I think it highlights one of the oddities of sort of the internet in general. Every, I mean, like, anti-capital as a blog looks more or less as legit as any other blog, basically. And it's like, every place has the appearance of the same amount of legitimacy. It looks like everybody's opinions has sort of the same equal weight and following, you know? And it's like, that's, you know, if you see, like, a crazy person on the on the side of the streets, like, screaming, like, the end of the world is near and stuff like that, like, you know that it's like, oh, that person needs help. It's It's not like oh, maybe they have something to say that you should really listen to or whatever, you know? Maybe I should give them a blog. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that kind of thing where everybody on the internet, their opinion, all opinions appear equal on the internet. Lack of historical knowledge is absolutely the biggest pitfall. I mean, it's just really shocking how much history we don't learn in school, like how much the content has been just eviscerated from it, and then we never pick it up again. So we don't know anything about where we're coming from. Me and Andy talked about basically that, how we each own, or we each have such a lack of, like, historical knowledge whatsoever, and how hard it is to find that as well, because everything kind of seems hard to find any sources you feel like you can trust, because everything feels polluted with, like, everything could be CIA propaganda, you know? Right. <laughs> and, then, and then you find the trustworthy sources, and they're 14 volumes long. That's why I don't have an opinion on so much. It's because, like, I don't know what I fucking think of, like, Stalin or China or North Korea or whatever. I don't fucking know. I don't know what's true or not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, hey, comrade, no investigation, no right to speak. But in the book club, this January 9th, we are going to be moving on to the topic of the history of the Russian Revolution, reading um, the history of the Russian Revolution by Leon Trotsky, which is, like, that's a good source, you know? Primary and shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. So <laughs> join that. Word. And I'd like to say, like, right before we start reading that, we're going to read, it's four articles, I thought it was three, actually, just kind of talking about what exactly a Soviet is, because I feel like people don't really know what a Soviet is. Like, you hear that word, you're like, oh yeah, a Soviet, that's the Russian word for council. It's like, okay, but do you really know what a council is? Like, we have town councils right now already, you know, like your local government kind of thing. It's not really the same thing as that. Yeah, and <laughs> even articles. history of the CPSUB only barely touches on it, so I'm looking forward to those articles. Yeah, yeah, and I, I don't know why some of these things are not more explicitly talked about. Like, I had to scour across and find four articles. I, 
I think it was almost either assumed that everybody would just know about it. Like it was either a common knowledge thing that people just didn't feel the need to mention in the same way that if they make a reference to a pencil or something, you don't feel the need to describe what a pencil is and what it does. Or they didn't really know so much themselves either. It's one of the two. and I'm not quite sure which it is. I think some people genuinely didn't know what it was. I think when you read about the German Revolution and particularly the ways and means that people respond to Paul Levi, they don't really get what he's on about. And that gives me sort of the impression that they don't really get what a Soviet really is or what the significance of that really is sometimes. Yeah, and a lot of Lenin stuff in particular. I mean, you hear, you know, okay, you need to read State and Rev, Proletarian Revolution, Renegade Kautsky, What is to be Done, etc., etc. And no one, you know, really brings up the fact that these are pretty highly context-dependent works. So you're going to miss a lot of what he's referring to if you don't already know the specific historical context and the people involved. Because, I mean, the first time I encountered, you know, proletarian revolution, it's like, okay, who the fuck is Kautsky? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's, that's one thing that I kind of wanted to figure out if I could shove into the curriculum some way, somehow. I'll definitely mention that, like, after we read History of the Russian Revolution, I think State and Revolution is a marvelous book to read right after that because mm-hmm. it was written, like, during that time. So it'll be perfectly in context if you read that right after um, the history of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, like I, I read that, but like I knew nothing about the history of the Soviet Union, and I wasn't in like a really cool book club or anything where I could discuss it afterwards and uh, further my understanding of it. So I did not gain very much understanding from reading State and Revolution alone. It was like the first time I read the Communist Manifesto. I, I read the foreword to it that basically said, oh, well, all this is wrong. And I was like, okay. I guess it's wrong then, and just read it. Didn't really think about it any more than that. Festo is actually a really horrible jumping-in point, and I don't I think know so. <laughs> why that's, like, the big thing. Um, but I, at the same time, I don't really have a better alternative other than um, Principles of Communism, which, of course, is the FAQ that goes with it. That or Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific, which we're going to read also. Uh, I love Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific. That's, like, one of my favorites. It's a banger. Indeed. These are, this is amazing. All these books I already have. <laughs> I had some more things, some more notes I took and stuff while reading the article. Okay, good, because we like, didn't ask Inverse anything about his article, and this is supposed to be his interview. Yeah. We're all a bunch of assholes. <laughs> well, I already knew that coming in. So. Uh, I mean, mainly Brol. It's mainly Brol, to be honest. You know? I mean, we already know about Brol's narcissism, but yeah, you know, I yeah, guess the rest are. of us aren't much better. <laughs> To be fair, I'm just really bad. Like, I read the article twice. Um, I read it, you know, inverse, you should be thankful. I've read this twice as much as I read every other article we've <laughs> has been released on Anti-Capital. But anyway, um, so, um, so you have the quote. Cooperatives and so-called work- workplace democracy assume the workplace, assume wage labor, assume capital. In short, they assume all the trappings of capitalist society, and yet this is what's presented to us as an ideal for socialist society. But I noticed, as someone coming to this that maybe is perhaps coming straight from BreadTube, wage labor and capital are fairly nebulous terms. And someone that's coming, uh, Ron Wrigling, from BreadTube might not know exactly what that entails and exactly why and how that's bad in the capitalist society. Wage labor is labor for a wage. Uh, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, capital is self-expanding value, which is you know value whose only purpose is to grow larger. 
So I think that uh, wage labor is the only thing that makes real capital out of capital. So you can't really have profit and capital uh, without people performing uh, work for a wage. Uh, it's really the only way that you can generate surplus value profit, which you can then use to expand production, to hire more wage laborers, to create more surplus value, and hence more profit to expand it yet again on a higher level. Right. And I, I, I mean, throughout history, humans have always produced more than they need to survive. But capitalism is the only system where that production of excess is the entire goal. I'd, I'd have to add to that you're saying there that wage labor is the only means which secretes surplus value. And I have to push back just a little bit there because... Of course you do. <laughs> he said capital, Yeah, I did that on purpose. Capital is able to directly interact with quote-unquote more primitive forms of production. So there's obviously the historical example of slavery in the United States South where mm -hmm. cotton was sold for a profit. And they, they did generate surplus value out of that slavery, which was not a waged labor, obviously. In Russia, yeah. there was still serfdom to an extent, and they were basically exploited through their taxes. They were heavily taxed rather than paid less than the value of their wage. They were just taxed over what they could produce. And so the, the form that surplus value takes classically does come about through wage labor. That is the real domination of capital. But capital is also able to interact with more quote-unquote backwards modes of productions and directly appropriate the physical products as a surplus of, above and beyond what those specific laborers require to survive. Something that I found especially interesting when reading capitalism in a point that I think was along the lines of how slavery gives the appearance of slavery gives the appearance that all the value is going to the the capitalist and um, I know exactly what quote you're talking about. Can you say it then? Because I'm forgetting yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. The illusion. I, I won't get it exactly, but I can paraphrase it pretty closely. It's that the illusion under slavery is that all of the labor is unpaid. Whereas the illusion under wage labor is that all of the labor is paid for because you're paid for, you know, every hour you're there, you get paid, you know, seven bucks an hour or whatever you make. So you get paid that much for every hour. But under slavery, you don't get paid anything. What you're not seeing in the waged or lack of wage relation is that the slave is quote-unquote paid by the fact that they are given food and lodging and clothing and things like that by their masters. The most naked form of that relation is probably under serfdom, where the serf will have their own plot of land and they'll also have their master's plot of land, where they will be allotted specific days to work on their plot of land and specific days to work on the master's plot of land. And there it's just very plain which parts of his labor are for himself and which parts are not. Everything else is kind of veiled under slavery. Everything looks like it's not for you and under wage labor everything looks like it is for you. If I can um, extend a little bit of the critique of like a cooperative movement just a little bit further. Inverse kind of talks about in his article how the, the cooperative, like he's saying, doesn't get rid of any of the forms and trappings of capitalism. I think he quotes Bordiga explicitly. I do. Yeah, Bordiga's dope. Uh, the, I knew you the, would like that. Yes, yes. Is that how you tried to 
Set my bribe to roll. Well, yeah, of course. You know, I I was writing to my audience. Anyway, but the hill of the capitalist firm is not that the firm has a boss, but that the firm exists at all. So the idea is that that you're critiquing specifically is that assuming you could get to a workers' cooperative-based society, capitalism's still there. You know, the tendency towards crisis still exists. The falling rate of profit still exists, which is ultimately just going to reproduce the original capitalist forms that were there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to extend that critique a little bit backwards, sort of the question is, what are the class forces pushing for a cooperative mutualist society? And the answer is simply that they basically don't exist. Marx, when he analyzes the movement of the working class, is able to say that the demand for higher wages is an implicit demand for labor's control over capital, which is an implicit demand for labor's control over society. It's an, you know, it's an implicit demand for the subordination of production to meet and expand human needs. And so he's able to look at the existing class struggles that are really happening in front of him. It's not a plan that he invented and said, this is a good idea, we should do this. It's something that he's looking, it's really happening in the world, and he's saying, this is where this points to. It's like watching somebody throw a ball. You can see where the ball is going before the ball gets there, based on just the fact that the ball is being thrown in that direction. There is no ball being thrown towards mutualist society. It's a nice idea that Proudhon made up years and years ago, and prior to him it was sort of a jeffersonian democracy idea and even prior to that it's like your peasant ideal every peasant just wants to have a farm and they want to be left the fuck alone they don't want to be taxed they just want their farm and they don't want you to come around and tax them it's it's like a really ancient idea but it's not real anymore modern society and the like mass production and industrial agriculture have rendered that sort of thing completely impossible everything has to be collective at this point production is collectivized by default you don't have very many workplaces of any significance that are run on like that sort of very small individual scale any longer so you can't just say oh we're going to directly appropriate our means of production and then we'll be just fine after that because (laughs) for the most part people work at places where they don't produce an entire product or they are simply selling a product that's already produced or whatever you know that's actually something that going back just a little bit uh that before i joined the book club i really didn't have an idea about within marxism was that it was actually almost like a study of history and uh, something that you could see directly happening uh, like before your eyes. And it, it wasn't just an idea um, that, that Marx came up with and said, hey, communism's pretty great, like we should do that. Uh, but that you can actually see the, the real movement of history through Marxist analysis and looking specifically at actual history. So that, that's that been very useful for me. Yeah, I think the direct quote from the German ideology, and I can almost directly quote this one, is that we call communism the real movement before... Oh, crap, no, I can't quote it exactly. I've got it wrong. Come now. on. We call <laughs> communism the real movement that abolishes the present state of things. Crap. I, I wanted you to talk more about the book club inverse because you didn't really get into that in the article to the extent I would have liked to have seen. So, um, I don't know, just kind of like how it's helped you maybe pick a couple concrete examples of how it's um, advanced your thinking. Okay, uh, well, part, part of oh, the... God. Can you hear the neighbor's dog barking at me? Faintly, I can, actually. Faintly, but it's not, ter- yeah. it's not like it's not the end of the world. We can edit that out. Um, well, we can't. <laughs> well, then you're a bad editor, aren't you? Hey, hey there's only, there's only, <laughs> there's, there's only one fucking track, and you're all on it, okay? All right. So, anyway, go on. 
One of the things that I've been grappling with um, recently, I'd say probably within the last year or so, is, you know, I, I had a pretty basic understanding of what socialism was, but I didn't really know how we got there, um, what the actual practice of socialism was. Um, so the book club has specifically focused on that, particularly the readings that we're doing now, um, Mike's stuff about, you know, the dictatorship of the proletariat and the trade union form, not something that I had ever been introduced to before. Um, so, you know, it, it's really helped me to kind of understand what exactly we need to do in the here and now to get where we want to go. And obviously, I don't I don't have all those answers yet, but I have a lot more information than I did coming into it, particularly that I didn't even think that, you know, a, a dictatorship of the proletariat was necessary, um, which, you know, that comes from Jehu because there's you know, the, the state just needs to be crushed and that's it. Um, so even even looking at that through Marx's words has helped me. So I know you haven't been able to attend a lot of the discussions because, you know, you're an exploited proletarian. Um, sure am. <laughs> but have you got a chance to read back through them and all that? Oh, yeah. I've, I've read every single article pretty much uh, since we finished Capital. I say we, uh, but it was really just, you know, the four of you. But I, I have, I read every single one of the weekly Marx quotes. I did all those. I've read so far every single uh, Mike article. I haven't been there for the discussions, but I have actually read all the pieces. I, sh I should actually probably go through and read them all again, but I, I have actually read them. But yeah, in the discussions, like, Proletariat explained a lot of stuff about those articles that, you know, actually made them comprehensible. So I hope you looked back at that. Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I also read every single discussion about every single piece, even though I couldn't be there. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm trying, guys, okay? So you have the quote, Although some bread tubers would deride the notion of the so-called marketplace of ideas, most of their efforts seem to fall well within the paradigm. Socialism seems to be to them just an idea among many, a correct opinion to be held, whose rising can only ever be bourgeois, a platform for some progressive candidate or party to run on, a set of prescriptions meant to make for a better, more humane capitalism. Which kind of ties into previous points that were being made about uh, the Karl Marx quote they brought up, communism is just not a state of affairs which is to be established, an ideal to which reality will have to address itself. Um, but I was going to ask if you would like to elaborate on uh, the way that uh, the way that the bread tuber's notion of socialism fits more into the marketplace of ideas, and in spite of their own claims, and not so much the, the real movement which abolishes the present state of things, that kind of thing. Right. Um, so it seems to me that a lot of bread tubers have this idea that that they're conceiving of socialism as something that you argue for, that you, you you put it out there like it's just an idea that you can have in your head and that somehow almost as if by magic, um, if you just agree with socialism as an idea, that you can make it happen in real life, that there that's really all there is to it, is just understanding that it's the best way to do things or something like that. Uh, it's not an actual practice or, a, a, to go back to Marx, a, a movement in in history. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just an idea that we like. I've got a relevant Marx quote. In that case, we do not confront the world in a doctrinaire way with a new principle. Quote, here is the truth. Kneel down before it. We develop new principles for the world out of the world's own principles. We do not say to the world, cease your struggles. They are foolish. We will give you the true slogan of struggle. We merely show the world what it is really fighting for. And consciousness is something that it has to acquire, even if it does not want to. Based. 
All right, that's it, comrades. There should be a link to join the book club in the show notes, and you can also get a link if you email us at or does it explode at protonmail.com. You can also find the email, our email address at uh, our anti-capital website, as well as the article we were discussing today, The Poverty of BreadTube. There's also a link to the article in the show notes. Pretty sure that's it. Have a nice night, everybody. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. Peace out, Girl Scouts. Yeah, bro listens to Capital while playing with your piss. <laughs> y- yes. <laughs>